College football fans, welcome to episode 145 of College Football Throwdown. I'm your co-host Alex Schmitz, and today I'm joined as always by my dad, Peter Schmitz. Hello, college football fans and Husker fans. Hard to believe that we're so close to 150, isn't it? I know, it is. I was just thinking that as you remarked on that 145, I'm like, damn. I just, I, It seems like it wasn't that long ago we were doing the 100th uh, uh, episode podcast, the special edition, and so... That's pretty amazing. Mm-hmm. Yep, we've been pretty consistent over the years, and uh, sadly, we're entering into the off season once again. Now that uh, the national championship game has ended, we are at the end of the 2022-2023 college football season. We are here today to discuss the uh, final bowl games from January 2nd, as well as the national championship game, and a little bit of Nebraska news at the very end. Uh, for those here for that. Uh, but before Sounds like a good time. Yeah. Uh, but before we dive into all that, uh, we're going to stick with our tradition and open up some beverages. Uh, however, uh, given that it is 2023 and New Year's resolutions and all that, uh, you and I are trying to focus on our weight. So maybe not as much on the uh, heavy beer this time, huh? <laughs> exactly. I have chosen to open a, uh, a nice light beer. Still going with the Yingling, which I've spoken about in recent podcasts. Uh, it's a good beer. I have discovered the Yingling Light is a actually pretty, pretty nice, flavorful beer for a light beer, and uh, is less than 100 calories. So here we go. And I've got one of these uh, sparkling ices here. It's peach nectarine. So something a little different. Now, doesn't that still have sugar in it? Uh, it doesn't say so on its no? back. So zero carbs, huh? Well, that's mm-hmm. good. Yeah, that's All where right. I like it. Well, cheers then, son. Cheers. All right, cheers. All right. There we go. Um, now, on the last podcast, uh, we had our special guest, your friend, Brian Clower, to discuss uh, the Michigan game as well as some of the other big bowl games, the semifinals and all that. And we had a lot of fun with that particular episode. Um and uh, all the bowl games hadn't happened yet. Um, so we had a few remaining for that January 6th, or I'm sorry, January 2nd date. Um, and one of those, uh, which, you know, some of them we got to watch together because that was our last day uh, together on our Christmas trip, but we were also heading to airports to send kids home and things like that. Um, but one of the games was Illinois versus Mississippi State, uh, I have to admit that uh, my allegiances were a bit uh, crisscrossed here because on the one hand, uh, I want to support Illinois because they're the Big Ten and everything, uh, and Mississippi State is SEC. On the other hand, Mississippi State did lose their coach, Mike Leach, recently, and they were playing for him. They had a pirate flag on one side of their helmets in honor of him and things like that. So, you know, there was good storylines either way on that one. Uh, I would agree, and I, I also had some mixed feelings having having uh, you know um, uh, been a uh, um, an observer and and I guess you could call fan of Mike Leach and his craziness over many many years, going back to his time at Texas Tech and even when he was in the, an offensive coordinator uh, at Oklahoma. So um, yeah, it was a kind of a bittersweet, right. Um, this wasn't one we gave a prediction for because it was a, mo- a little bit more of a minor game, but, uh, Illinois was actually in the lead for the majority of the game. <clears throat> they went up, uh, seven to nothing. And then eventually I think it was, uh, 10 to seven, maybe it was 10 to three, one of the two. Um, but they could never expand the lead beyond that in the second half. They just could not get a score to save their life. And he, so you kind of knew if they weren't going to extend the lead, then eventually Mississippi State would catch up, and they did, and they kicked a field goal um, to make it 13-10 to 10 with, like, four seconds to go, and then, of course, Illinois on their desperation, you know, lateral it back and forth final play, uh, fumbled it, and a Mississippi guy, State guy picked it up for a touchdown, uh, uh, so I... it ended up being a bit more of a lopsided score than it really was of... Uh, 19 to 10. 
Yeah, those are the kinds of final plays that piss off a lot of gamblers because it's <laughs> quite possible that that might have swung some uh, some prop bets or you know um, uh, margin type bets off. That's true. That's definitely true. So you know. Props to Illinois in that, you know, they kept them contained for a large portion of the game. Illinois' defense has shown itself to be the real deal, you know, throughout the season. But, uh, yeah, their offense looked uh, really bad, and Mississippi State was able to get their win for their former coach. So that was kind of cool to see. Uh, the other uh, Big Ten SEC matchup uh, that day was uh, LSU-Purdue, which did not go nearly as well. Well, uh, before we move beyond the Illinois Mississippi State game um it, it's valuable to look at and realize that uh Illinois and and Mississippi State to some extent but Illinois particularly had uh lost quite a few players to the portal we had quite a few discussions going into the game about some of these bowl games and how their outcome was dramatically i think affected by the number of players that were choosing not to play or who had got gone into the portal and already transferred or were in the process of transferring to another school. Right. Yeah. No, that definitely was a factor in a lot of the games we saw. Um, I think you, you might've seen it in that LSU Purdue game as well. I think both teams had some uh, yes. players that had transferred to other schools, um, but uh, Purdue isn't nearly as deep as LSU was. So I think it affected them a lot more, not to mention that, you know, even if they were playing at their peak, uh, they were going to struggle to beat LSU. And it turned into a drumming of a uh, 63 to seven, a little bit of a preview of another game we'll be talking about later. <laughs> yes, exactly. And I, and I, but I see, I think that does, that's, that's one of the downsides of this new reality that we have in our bowl games is that, the fact that that teams don't view them as the reward for a good season that they used to be. I mean, bowl games used to be a celebration and, you know, an opportunity for players to go down and have a lot of fun. And they would, they would get a nice gift package typically from the bowl game. You know, there was a lot of amenity to the whole experience and it was, it was an enjoyable thing, which is why people like to travel to go to those games because there was lots of pomp and circumstance around them. It just seems like a lot of these uh, bowl games now are losing their luster. They're not nearly as as important, quote, quote, in the eyes of the fans. Uh, and uh, that's just greatly diminished, um, you know, that experience. Yeah. Um, we did predict this one, and both of us predicted that LSU would beat Purdue, so no surprises there. We both get a check mark for that one. Um. And then there was the Rose Bowl, which was Penn State, Utah. Um, I got to see some of the first half of this game, and then I had to uh, get on my plane to fly back to California. Uh, at the time right. when I stopped, it was tied 14-14 at halftime. Uh, so, you know, it seemed like a pretty back-and-forth game. You know, both defenses were playing pretty well. Uh, and then in the second half, which I saw uh, highlights of later, uh, Penn State got some huge plays where they ran, you know, 80 yards for touchdowns, expanded their lead to 35-14, just completely shut Utah out. Uh, and Utah only scored a touchdown right at the end of the game when it the outcome was uh, not in contention. Right. Yeah, that was a, 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 a great second half by Penn State. And, uh, you know, that really seemed uh, at least the way they perceived it uh, is really setting them up for this coming season. You know, they are, they, they, and this is the value of bowl games as a, as a reward for a good season. Penn state, you know, was playing this game knowing full well, they were not going to be in contention for any kind of major, you know, national championship discussion or anything like that. They were playing for the pride of, uh, of their school and, and of uh, being the Rose Bowl champions. And there was enough of that still left for them, and it just gives them tremendous positive momentum going into you know, the spring and, and next year and that sort of thing. That's right. the value that bowl yeah. games can still bring. That's very true. Though I will say um, one aspect of this win that they will not be able to carry forward is Sean Clifford, uh, their quarterback right. who has been with them forever, it seems like, uh, is a senior now, so he's graduating. Uh, but he played one of his best games of his career 
in that uh, Utah game, you know, was throwing passes on point and making good decisions. Um, yeah. So it'll be interesting to see how they fill that hole next year. Right. And he's, he's generally been a guy that, I mean, he, uh, uh, you know, the Penn state fans probably aren't going to be, um, you know, all uh, in the dumps about him leaving. I mean, I think they're certainly proud of what he did and, and everything, but he was a very uh, um, manager, game manager kind of quarterback for them. And I, I think they're probably optimistic about their quarterback room. Yeah, this game was, it, it was a bit of a surprise to me that Utah, or I'm sorry, that Penn State won that dramatically because um, you and I both predicted that Utah would win. I said 45 35, you said 35 17. I think both of us coming off of that uh, at, uh, Pac-12 championship game where Utah played very well against USC, and maybe we were uh, overrating USC, as we'll talk about later. Um, but I thought that they would carry that into this game against Penn State. Right, I agree. And I, and and Penn State, you know, looked as clean and prepared as uh, as they had all season. So Penn State really benefited from their preparation time and those extra practices that a bowl game brings you. Uh, because they looked pretty sharp. Mm-hmm. Right. In contrast to some of the other games we talked about last time where you saw a lot of sloppy play uh, because the teams had been off for so long, right? They weren't getting their usual daily practices right. in. That's right. Yep. And it's it's all in how you prepare and what, what your mental frame of mind is for that preparation period. Uh, and I feel that Penn State really did a great job uh, preparing their team yep so this next game is kind of funny this is the uh uh, Tulane USC game which was the Cotton Bowl this year um and we got to watch part of that at a restaurant that we were at together um but then we had to once again go take me to the airport um and I pulled up the Tulane like radio broadcast on my phone uh, because Tulane was starting to mount a little bit of a comeback and it was like well you know they've got a They've got like four minutes left, uh, down 15 points. Uh, at the time, the score was uh, 30 to 45. So 30 to 45 with four minutes left. They had a couple timeouts, I think. So it's like possible, you know, it's possible for them to make the comeback, but very unlikely. Um, and then sure enough, you know, I look at the score on my phone after I've checked in my bags and stuff at the airport. I'm like, holy crap, they scored and they got a safety somehow. Like, how the hell did that happen? You know, and I wasn't able to see the end live, unfortunately. But um, it was one of the most miraculous comebacks I've seen in a long time. Yeah. Well, and, uh, you know, the, the number of things that had to go their way to make that happen is is one of those things where, you know, you need the other team to just flat out screw up, right? And they, so the other team needs to do some things that are just self-destructive. And, uh, you know, we, we've, we've witnessed that in a negative way in recent years with some of the, the ways that Nebraska has found to lose games late, um, including this season. And you think about our game against Wisconsin in which we were winning like 14-3, um, to 3, you know, uh, uh, going into the fourth quarter, and we found a way to lose. Um, uh, I mean, you know, so it th- that's where I get the whole 21-point uh, uh, rule, right? A lot of people feel like a 14-point lead is significant. Not me. Right. Well, especially in the modern world of college football with these spread offenses and all these, you know, big pass plays and quarterbacks with great arms and stuff like that, you know, and with how defenses are typically tired in the fourth quarter going to that prevent style offense, right. And just giving up things that they weren't earlier in the games. You know, we've seen it so many times where the fourth quarter is by far the scoriest, most offensive, you know, quarter in a game. Yes, that is correct. Cause that's when, uh, number one, if you're behind, you start to, uh, you, you start to take risks that you wouldn't normally take. You, you might change up your offensive uh, approach, which then the defense has to adjust to, and you're going for it on fourth downs. So all of those things tend to start, uh, uh, you know, enhancing the offensive performance. Right. Um, and just to comment, before we got to this miraculous comeback, um, one thing I noticed while watching the game was that USC was being dominant in terms of time of possession, 
you know, they were having nice long drives, you know, throwing in some running plays to eat up clock. And in the final tally of it, they basically had 40 minutes to Tulane's 20, um, had 29 first downs compared to 16 for Tulane. So that just goes to show you how much more they were, you know, just driving it down the field, you know, getting first downs, right? And seemed to be in control of the game, you know, by that by the time of that fourth quarter. But then they they had a nice drive and the Tulane stopped them and forced them to kick the field goal, which left it at a 15-point game instead of whatever that would have been a 19-point uh, game, right? Um, right, right? So that was key. And then Tulane gets the kickoff, scores in two plays. Uh, USC has some of their missed tackles again. You know, that was a big issue for them in their championship game, and clearly they did not uh, fully fix it in that time. Uh, and then, interestingly, even though Tulane, at, let's say they were at three minutes left there, uh, Tulane doesn't go for the onside kick. They just go for a standard kickoff, even though their defense hasn't been very good at stopping USC. And they get super, super lucky in that uh, USC's guy calls for the fair catch on like the one yard line right by uh, the edge of the field, right by sideline. Sideline, yeah. Uh, and the dude just drops it. It just drops right out of his hands goes out of bounds. So now USC has the ball at the one yard line uh, and they're able to use that to get a safety. So it was literally like worst case scenario aside from like a fumble for uh, USC. Right. Exactly. And that's what leads to the, uh, uh, the, the, the safety, uh, and, and, which ultimately leads to getting another possession for Tulane that allows them to go down and win the game. Right. Uh, well, and it was important because then at that point, they just needed a standard seven point touchdown to win by one. Whereas if the safety hadn't been there and they had gotten the ball back, they would have had to go for eight. They, so they would have had to go for the two point conversion just to tie the game. So that two point safety really was everything. And uh, I'm curious what your kind of thought is from the coaching perspective there, right? Because obviously it worked out that the guy kicked it off because they got the safety and then that led to the rest of the game happening. Uh, but in 99% of scenarios, that doesn't happen. So do you think they would have been wiser to just go for the onside kick and go for the win? Yes. I, I would say that given the time in the game and everything, I think that, uh, you know, uh, most teams would have lined up and, and made and took their shot at an onside kick. But I'm actually see, uh, my my feeling is is if you look at the number of times that the onside kick actually works on a percentage basis, versus especially when it's done at the end of a game. If you if you excluded the quote quote surprise onside kicks, and you looked at just the end of game scenario onside kicks that work versus don't work, uh, I would say that you know we should kick it off further. You know, kick a, a normal kickoff you know, more often uh, because onside kicks just don't work that much. Right. Yeah, no. And we, we had some debates about that watching some of the semifinal games and bowl games. Like I would have kicked an onside kick maybe in a certain situation. You said no, things like that. Right. Um, Yeah. It's, it's really about time. How much time do you have left? Uh, Are you able to preserve your, your timeouts? If you've already, uh, you know, thought about that end of game scenario, then as a coach, you, you should already know, okay, this is how I'm going to use my timeouts in this situation. And I, I, so I know what I'm going to do going in with that so that uh, if I'm going to kick it off, then I need to, I need to plan and, and my defense needs to know, okay, guys, we need to three and out these guys right here. If we're going to win this game, this is how I'm setting us up to put ourselves in a position to win a game. Uh, now, if you, if you guys don't stop them in three, and they get that first down, then then it's going to be really tough. Right. Um, and despite those stats I said earlier about how USC, you know, is controlling a lot of the game, you know, they threw 52 passes compared to Tulane's 18, right, over the course of the game. Uh, both of them were one and one in terms of turnovers, which was significant. And in terms of total yardage, it was USC 594 to Tulane 539. So even though they had the ball only half the amount of time, they still scored over 500 yards of offense on USC. 
Um, and interestingly, I saw today that Lincoln Riley said in some sort of press conference that uh, he is not planning on changing his staff, including his current defensive coordinator, Alex Grinch, uh, which caused much gnashing of teeth in the uh, Trojan community because people were like, oh, my God, after the Utah, you know, uh, Pac-12 championship game and now losing to Tulane and getting humiliated in this, you know, terrible way, you know, and all the defensive struggles he had at Oklahoma before that, you would think he would uh, make that a priority, but it seems like he's sticking with his guy. Well, yeah, and, and, and that's, that's Lincoln Riley, you know, showing loyalty to a guy that he trusts. Now, whether or not that guy legitimately deserves that trust is probably another debatable conversation. But, uh, you know, hey, uh, there are some examples of in, the, uh, in recent Nebraska the last 20 years in Nebraska where, you know, uh, there's a couple of head coaches might still have a job if they had been willing to make a change at the coordinator position, uh, which they were unwilling to do. So sometimes that's the, that's the, the death knell of a, of a coach, but then other times, uh, they get rewarded, right? So it all depends on your perspective and what you know about what's going on internally. It makes me think a little bit of, uh, Nick Saban, you know, uh, Obviously, you know, you don't necessarily want to emulate his style of relationships with his coordinators, right? Because he's kind of known as a kind of a colder guy, you know, and not necessarily building that kind of friendly family atmosphere you might have, you know, amongst uh, assistant coaches that stay with you for a long time because a lot don't with Nick. Uh, but at the same time, he's not afraid to cut someone loose and go for someone who might be better, you know, if they're not living up to Nick's standards, right? There's no, uh, not as much of that attachment with him, I guess. Oh, exactly. It, it's very professional-based. It's a performance-based business. It's a meritocracy. And you, you know what? As an assistant coach or coordinator, you need to understand that if you're part of, of this whole overall team does not perform that reflects on you it's on you and you're going to bear the consequences of that whereas in some of these other cases like like uh the decision by usc's coach you know uh lincoln Riley has made a decision that's saying hey i'm going to be loyal to you even though you know the the performance on the field does not justify that right uh, the, the performance on the field would say you need to make a change and that that coordinator frankly couldn't be surprised or angry legitimately he might be but that's his own problem uh but legitimately that's the business right so you need to know you're going to get fired when you're when your team underperforms when you have the kind of talent that usc does but maybe lincoln riley understood that the team was shallow on the defensive side of the ball and that he needed to give this guy another year to accumulate more defensive talent and experience whatever and we're going to give him one more shot. Now, if next year they're still struggling uh, to defend uh, the run, uh, particularly, uh, I have a feeling he'll be gone. Right. Yes, because this is Lincoln Riley's first year at USC, you know, so the fact that he, right. uh, you know, made it to the Pac-12 championship, you know, and was a top contender amongst the Bulls is already, you know, impressive, although obviously he's doing it with a lot of talent from Oklahoma and the you know, name and recognition of USC, you know, so you and the, and the Heisman Trophy winning quarterback. Exactly. When you have a, when you have that kind of talent at that key position, then you, you should be able to have a, a reasonable amount of success. Well, and that's the thing. If Lincoln Riley just asked, asked that coach to move to Southern California, right, move his family, everything right and commit to him. So if anything, Lincoln, that's on you that you hired this guy who you already had some history with and understood maybe wasn't the best defensive coordinator, right? So, so the fact that you stayed with him then, once you invited him to come out to California, you got to figure you're going to give him at least two years. Right. I understand that. Um, in that, for our prediction there, uh, we, I, we both predicted a loss for Tulane and a win for USC. So we were both wrong, but I'm happy to be wrong on that one. That was a very exciting uh, game. And I saw a lot of the, you know, the react like the 
you know, local radio reaction from the Tulane, you know, sports casters and stuff, you know, they're going crazy and everything. So, you know, it's a, it's a, a possibility of excitement for what we could see with the 12 team playoff, right? Cause Tulane was the best of the group of five this year. They were the champion in their conference. Um, so if we had had the current, the 12 team playoff structure this year, they would have been included, uh, and maybe they would have upset a team, you know, and, and narrowly won and gone further right. on, right? Uh, uh, right. On an early, yep, an early, yep. Early round? Round. Thank you. That's the term I was trying to think of. Yes. Yes. Yep. So uh, that leaves us, uh, as I mentioned on last week's podcast, that left us tied up in our predictions, uh, seven to seven in terms of the bowl games and everything. Um, so I, I kind of bit the bullet on the last podcast and said, okay, I'll predict that TCU will beat Georgia uh, in the national championship game so that we won't have a tie. Because if we both predicted Georgia, you know, then we'd be right or wrong either way. So I predicted that TCU would win narrowly against Georgia 42-41. You predicted that Georgia would win 42-24. And Brian predicted that Georgia would win 42-28. Uh, so I guess of the three of us, you were the closest uh, but even your score prediction was generous, as it turned out, as uh, yeah. Georgia came out and whooped TCU uh, 65 to 7. <laughs> yes. Well, and it, and it's sad. Uh, there's so many things you can say about this uh, that are probably over overgeneralizing and, and overreacting to this one game, right? But at, at the end of the day, I would just say, I believe the pundits were right going back to uh, the semifinals. And if Michigan had done their job, okay, and, and done what they should have and, and, and very well could have done, which is to beat TCU, okay, and uh, then, then we would have had a more entertaining finals, I believe. Most likely Georgia would have won it again. But again, people need to for, uh, put into perspective the TCU's loss and Georgia's dramatic victory in the context of the previous game just a week ago, frankly, Georgia needed a miracle and a little help from some officials to get over the hump of Ohio state. Well, frankly, it was a bit of a miss time mismanagement on their part, right? As Stenson Bennett said after the game where he was like, uh, we, we left too much time left for them. We scored too early. I can't believe we won that game. You know, if they, because they were in control, they were like, you know, in the end zone or in the red zone, rather. Uh, if they had, you know, purposefully gone for some more conservative play calls, you know, and ran it and just to try to run the clock a little more. So there wasn't like, I think there was 50 seconds left by the time they scored a touchdown. If they had wound that down more, then Ohio State wouldn't have had enough time to go back and try to kick the field goal. But as it was, they did leave quite a bit of time left. And Ohio State did almost you know, kick the field goal to, to win the game or I or maybe would have tied the game. I don't remember. Um, right. No, it would have won it. Cause I think they were only up by one or two points. Um, I think you're right. But uh, you know, Ohio state kind of messed up at the end, right? They had that yes. series where they had three plays that oh. went backwards. And so then yeah. they had to kick the, the 50 yard field goal. Didn't make any sense at all. Yes. <laughs> uh, but, my point is I'm, I'm speaking of the beginning of the fourth quarter when Ohio state had a lead of like, I think it was 18 points or 14 points. I mean, it was a lot. Yeah. And, 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 and if you're Ohio state with the talent that you have and you're playing a team that through three quarters, you've beat, you know, you've outscored by that much, you should have been able to find a way to close it out. Right. And so don't get, don't allow uh, the dramatic victory against the TCU team that clearly on that night was overmatched in almost every way and, and you know, begin to anoint Georgia as the greatest team of all time because of that one game when you don't take into context that the previous week they probably, you know, statistically speaking, should have lost to o Ohio State. And I I'm just disappointed because I, I feel like if Michigan had done their job, they would have been there and it would have been at least a more interesting and competitive game. Now, in all likelihood, would I have would I have picked Georgia to win in a Michigan versus Georgia matchup? Yes, I would have. Right. To uh, defend myself a little bit here, um, 
you know, I also was of the opinion that like Georgia was more likely to win than TCU, but I picked TCU last week, as I said, because I wanted to, you know, create some disparity between us. So we wouldn't end with a tie. Um, but I mean, I did think TCU had a legitimate chance. You know, I think it was Brian who said near the end of our podcast, right. How, uh, Georgia, uh, you know, had some issues with the throwing game, right. With Ohio state. And that's what TCU is good at. You know, that was what Max Duggan was good at in the Michigan game, you know, and they run that three, three, five, uh, defense and all that stuff. So, you know, there were some signs that, uh, TCU could give some matchup problems to Georgia, um, but when it came to the actual game, as it started, I could immediately tell that TCU looked like they were playing nervous, you know, like they got the ball to start the game right away and they went three and out, basically did nothing, had to punt right. it. It was a particularly good punt either. And then over the course of the game, Max Duggan threw three bad picks, um, including in some, you know, scenarios where he gave George a great field position to quickly score again. So I honestly, I went to a bar to watch the game and I left by halftime when it was uh 38 to seven. Cause I knew it was already over. You know, there was no, right. no signs of life within TCU. Uh, and then as it turns out in the second half, they just kept racking it up and TCU didn't throw another pick again, but uh, you know, they also couldn't get anything going on offense and Georgia just racked up the score. Right. Exactly. And, and so, you know, that's just a snowball thing, you know, where one team is rolling and the other one, frankly, kind of collapses, right? They, they lose their focus. The, all, the, all the disciplines they'd had during the season, I'm sure, within the defense, you know, if you talk to those co- the coaching staff, they will say, you know, our, our, our guys just, they stop doing the basics. They stop doing the, 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 the things that we've been doing all year. And, you know, it's just one of those deals. And so that's what happens in – championship games it's it's why oftentimes you know uh, uh super bowls can be lopsided and kind of uneventful right um well it, so. it made me think because i mentioned on the last podcast how objectively those were the two best semifinals the college football playoff had ever had because both games were right. down to the wire and exciting and you know went to the end whereas in the past we've had one game maybe be exciting and the other would be kind of a blowout in the semifinals um but my worry kind of going into this game was that, okay, we got great semifinals, but we might be in for boring finals if TCU can't put up a fight. Um, and sadly, that's what we got. Whereas in past years, right, maybe we've had some boring semifinals, but then like we'd get Clemson, Alabama, right, playing each other. And those were some really exciting national championship games between those two teams or even with Georgia last year, you know, there was some excitement there. So uh we kind of traded one good for another this year, it seems. Yes, I, I would agree. And, you know, uh, the, the, the uh, maybe bigger long-term question now is, as we project the, the near future here where we go to 12 teams, the reality is um, having a team like TCU, who, who uh, I'm going to just say it, played a, uh, uh, one of their best games to beat, a Michigan team, okay, and and reap the benefits of some Michigan uh, mistakes and poor play calling. A team like that is now going to have to win three and possibly four games, right? They're going to have to win the the first round game because um, uh, they might be a lower seed, so they're not going to get a bye. Then they're going to have to play in the round of eight. Then they're going to play in the round of four. And then they're going to have to play in the finals, right? So four games, that's a lot uh, to have no significant injuries and to be able to sustain a level of performance that's probably above your pay grade, for lack of a better term, right? Uh, right. This, this, this idea of having a Cinderella, you know, uh, just find their, themselves in, a, in, an, in an opportunity and then seizing on that opportunity is, is going to be far less likely. So, frankly, the 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 outcome based things will there be upsets in this new playoff structure? Probably, but in many cases, the best team in the country is going to emerge uh, out of that group and win, right? Because you're going to have to be able to be good three times for sure, and four times uh, if you wanted to be one of those lesser teams below four. 
that comes in and, you know, wins the day, so to speak. It's not a one game deal. Right. Well, yeah, like you say, it'll, it'll reward teams uh, that have consistency, you know, that are able to be consistently great and also probably will, uh, you know, um, encourage some more kind of conservative uh, play calling by the coaches if they get a lead. Right. You know, like maybe you do, you know. Uh, bench your starting quarterback if you've got you know a 17 point lead late in the game or whatever because you're thinking about the next game and the fact that you do have this three four game gauntlet stretch you know that you need to be prepared for i would agree i think that'll bring a bunch of elements like that into the decision processes that'll have to be you know considered and decided on uh, during these uh these future games no doubt about it i do want to give credit to uh Georgia to Kirby Smart and Stenson Bennett and that whole team because clearly the you know they kind of went into the Ohio State game uh, not fully prepared and nearly got uh, upset and knocked out because of it and they managed to hold on by a thread and they clearly took that as a wake up call and were much more focused and disciplined this this time uh, Kirby Smart and his coaches called a great game plan I commented to you about how fast Georgia looked you know TCU being a Big 12 team that's one of their strengths is their speed you know being able to beat people to the edges and things like that but Georgia seemed like they caught them every time they tried to do stuff like that and Stenson Bennett had probably one of his best games uh, of the oh. year uh, was throwing accurate passes all over yeah. the place and beating uh, TC with his legs on occasion. You know, there's like a third and 10. I can remember where he just reversed it and ran for 15 yards. Um, so credit to them. You know, they looked like the best team all year. They're the defending national champions and they, uh, you know, repeated this time. So, you know, we may be entering into a, uh, New Georgia dynasty, perhaps, instead of an Alabama dynasty? Absolutely. Well, you know, in the whole college football playoff era, Nick Saban was never able to win back-to-back championships. Mm-hmm. Right? Right. So now Kirby has already done something his mentor didn't do. And frankly, if you look at Georgia's joke of a schedule, because they, they uh, were scheduled to play either Texas or Oklahoma, Next year, that was going to be their big non-conference game, and they canceled it because Oklahoma and, and Texas are coming into the league, and they replaced it with a, a a junk, you know, team. Right. So, so their schedule is a joke. And you know who else's is 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 right up there with one of the weakest is Michigan's because Michigan ran into the same thing. They had a scheduled game against either UCLA or USC. I can't remember who it was. And it got canceled because USC and UCLA are coming into the Big Ten. And so instead, they end up throwing some lesser school in there at the last minute. Well, why didn't those two guys get together and have, you know, a, a, ma- a massive game, you know, start the season? Why didn't they do that and match those two teams? Because they both would have had an open week, so to speak, they would have had an extra game available because of these conference realignment right. schedule adjustments and play each other. Right. So, and then you, then you <laughs> my guess is that, you know, cause Texas and Oklahoma went to the SEC bef- quite a bit before USC and UCLA did. So my guess is that Georgia reworked their schedule and got that sorted out before USC and UCLA had even left. I understand, but when, but when you look at those two schedules of two of the most, you know, two of the final four teams from this year and you say, oh my gosh, they both have these patsy schedules next year. It would be great if we could get those two to match up early and, and find out who's the better team right up front, you know, instead of having this hype train that will build next year. Yeah. I don't know. It's just, it's just a dream to have a good have a good game and and what it's it's proving out is that one of the things that you that we were that I was hopeful a college fo- football playoff would bring is it would eliminate the need for teams to be undefeated so that they would schedule quality competition uh with the the whole premise that hey you know what playing quality opponents prepares you for when you do get the pl- to the playoffs it's, it just it helps your team in a lot of ways to do that. But there is no incentive for, for 
football teams to do that. There's no incentive for them to schedule hard. The, in fact, the incentive is the complete opposite. It is to, it is to schedule easy. Get, uh, they have nine home games next year. Georgia does nine. <laughs> wow. You know, nine out of 12. Right. Well, <laughs> it, it's interesting thinking about the 12 team playoff on the one hand, you know, the incentive structures are still towards being undefeated because, you know, if you're undefeated by the end of the year, then you'll definitely be, you know, amongst that top group of, uh, sure. yeah, the top group of teams. Well, uh, most likely in the, in the top four, cause the top four do need to be, uh, conference champions as well. Um, but, uh, on the other hand, um, you'll have more since there's 12 teams getting in, you'll have more teams that are in the one loss, two loss category. Right. And you'll have the ones that are in that range of like, okay, we're in the 12 to eight range, you know, and we're fighting with several other teams who might have an argument for getting in. Um, Then strength of schedule for those teams will be really important. Who did you lose to? How bad was it? Who did you beat? You know, those will become more important. And this is where uh, some attempts to um, um, achieve a collective agreement among especially the power five conferences to um, have consistent rules of engagement, so to speak within the the sport. Uh, Meaning that if everybody's going to do eight conference games and basically have patsies outside of that, okay, then that's, that's what you agree to. But you hope that they would have been able to agree to the same number of conference games. And in, in every one of the conferences, of the power five conferences, it should be beneficial for them to have more conference games. That should be the way to produce more money, more eyeballs watching the games, more interest, etc. So the fact is, is that now that we're playing 12 regular season games, everybody should be playing nine rather than playing eight. So, so that we, and then you, then you're on a level playing field on the whole win loss record thing and, and, you know, wins and losses within conferences and all that sort of stuff. And then the other thing would be, you know, uh, Georgia, again, uh, even their championship game is in Atlanta, practically a home <laughs> game. So the tr- they will literally hardly ever leave the state much like, and that's the, that's the, that's the formula that Alabama used. You know how long it's been since Alabama has played a non-conference game, you know, outside of the Southeast. It's it's just crazy. Well, it's just crazy. To that point, I remember seeing a headline uh, leading up to the national championship game saying that with Georgia's plane ride from Georgia to uh, California and back, um, they had like almost doubled their total travel time for the season. Just going to your point of like how little they had to go outside of their sphere. Exactly. And, you know, they, 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 they never have to play and, the severe elements that a lot of other schools do. There's just so much that is inconsistent and, um, um, you know, produces this collective advantage that they've now figured out the formula for and are just sticking with it. And so Clay Travis, who's obviously a a well-known national pundit of college sports, of sports in general, uh, made the point and, and basically made the prediction that in uh, once we get four or five years into the uh, 12-team playoff, we are going to see a Final Four that's all SEC. That's what's going to happen because uh, right now all the advantages are there. And so the, the athletes are, are nearby. The weather is advantageous in the Southeast versus the other major conferences. Uh, they have... Uh, you know, money that matches any other conference in the country. Uh, so their resources are going to be as plentiful or more plentiful than any other conference. They have every single advantage. How, how is there, how is that going to lead to a competitive, uh, national sport? There, there's no balance in the NFL. There are limits to roster sizes. There are limits to everything, right? Um, uh, money, uh, all those things, uh, free agency rules, all these things that keep that, you know, the draft is set up to always give the worst team the best new player, you know, things to keep it balanced and competitive. It's why the sport of NFL football is so effective as a product, right? And if, and if we want to sustain 
and you know and hopefully grow the sport in some measure other than how much money is being made uh we need to start respecting the sport more and recognize that some of those issues along with national um, uh, referee uh, uh, um, standardization you know all these kinds of things that we could talk about that would lead us to a more national sport that had competitive national interest across the board right and we're not headed down that way we're headed down the path that makes the most money and is going to lead to uh basically a super conference and a very regionalized sport and then all of a sudden you will see the chinks in the armor are already exposed in the pac 12 and the big 12 and uh, the big 10 is hanging on for now because we got the big uh, stadiums and the big uh, alumni bases and the tradition of the sport, but you go another 20 years of the SEC dominating, and guess what's going to happen? Uh, other than the majors in the Big Ten, say Michigan, Ohio State, and maybe now USC, um, you know, you're going to see almost everyone else crumble or begin to crumble. I, I just I don't know that you're going to have too many teams that are going to be able to stick with it if if that concentration continues to be what it has been. Right. Well, and. One point to add to that is that uh, the the powers that be are paying attention to the money and to the eyeballs, right? You know yep. that that's that's one of their key factors in all this stuff. And this, uh, according to a stat I saw, uh, this national championship game averaged seventeen point two million viewers, which is the lowest ever for a college football national championship since the BCS started in ninety nine. Um, obviously it was because it was a blowout game, you know, and, uh, a lot of people tuned out like we did at halftime, I'm sure. Um, but if the, uh, you know, networks are seeing lower viewership, you know, consistently, uh, because, you know, it's becoming more and more regionalized, right. Or, you know, these people just know that these aren't going to be competitive games because, uh, there is no kind of fairness controls like, like you have in the NFL, then it, it, that won't happen immediately. But over time, that trend will be there and the money will start to slip away. And then that might force people to make changes. But the question is, would it be too late at that point? Right. I, I, that, that is exactly right. Everything you just said there is exactly right. And I would add one more thing. It's, it's not lost on me that the SEC commissioner is now clamoring to eliminate the early signing period, okay, which is only... You know, uh, I think it started in 2016, 2017 was the first year we had the early signing period in December rather than, you know, historically before that it had always been, there was only one signing day and it was February 2nd. There's a reason why he, because he talks about it being chaos and especially with now the portal and all this stuff, it's just too much going on. And, you know, um, woe is me for the, for the uh, coaches, you know, who are trying to manage all this stuff. Well, the number of po- coaches that are involved, that are still involved in football games that matter, meaning the playoff, it's a very small number of the, the total of 125 teams, right? And so his, his claim to want to uh, change that is very self-serving for an SEC that's currently the, the top of the heap, okay? And uh, the, the thing with that earlier signing period is you're not forced to retain these recruits and keep other people from stealing them away from you or enticing them away for a whole nother two months. If, if a kid has already made their decision, they're comfortable with, it, with their decision in December, they ought to be able to sign on the dotted line and finish it so that the pressure's off for them. They can enjoy their Christmas and the, and the coaches now that, that guy's locked in on, on a national uh, letter of intent and, and you know, they can shift their focus to whatever their additional needs are. That was the whole logic of it and why it's beneficial. There's another fundamental thing. Most, even the northern parts of the United States, a lot of times the weather isn't so bad leading up to that early signing date, right? Uh, The worst weather of the winter in the northern regions usually comes in January and February, right? So what's the advantage? The southeastern teams, again, because of their superior, superior warmer weather, Okay, that's another advantage for them bringing kids in during January recruiting weekends when they're comparing that to the ugly weather of Minnesota or Nebraska, right? 
Right. Are you are you following me? No. Yeah. And this this is an athletic. This is a, a, a the major SEC conference commissioner trying to angle to get another advantage for his conference. I get it. That's his job. But but that is not what's better for the sport. Right. Well, and I uh, shared you on that article um, and I saw some interesting discussion about that in the comments with some people agreeing with him who aren't necessarily SEC fans. So I think it is an interesting discussion about is the early signing period overall better or worse for college football. And I think we'll go into that on a uh, podcast here in our off season. We've got a lot yes. to uh, talk it, about. It, 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 it just struck a chord with me and why I wanted to mention it right now was because of that you know, in, in light of all these other things that we just walked through about advantages and the inequity uh, of how we can, and, and I'm not calling for us to become the NFL. That's not the point, but, but there are some things that we need to have honest conversations with as a, as a, a sports community that loves the, the sport of collegiate football and recognize these realities and say, how, what can we do to, to maintain competitive balance while allowing people to do what they do well. Right. And and then grow the game. Um, shifting back to the national championship game here, I was curious um, if Clower, Brian Clower, was texting you over the course of the game or the following days, because I got to imagine that he and the Michigan fan base are like, how the hell did we lose this team? You know, that's getting crushed by Georgia on national TV. Well, uh, uh, <laughs> Yes, you are correct on all fronts. We did have some conversation text-wise, and we chatted a little bit even today about it. Um, and it wasn't so much that he was – I mean, he knows why they lost the game, right? He knows why Michigan lost to TCU. But I think the frustration that I had, you know, right after that game, I think he probably had a stronger sense of that in his own mind. But, but again – why I just talked about all these more global issues was because in my conversation with him as a, as a strong, ardent, long, lifelong Michigan fan, he is admitting to me regularly how he is not, it doesn't bother him as much. His level of commitment and passion to the sport is dramatically reduced from where it was. It's just, it's just not what it used to be for an entire generation of fans like him and me, okay, who have watched this deterioration of our sport that we love. Um, and, and so, you know, his takeaway was I should, I should be more angry. I should be more frustrated and I'm not, I'm more apathetic if, if anything, and especially given what's going on with Jim Harbaugh, um, <laughs> and, uh, as his, you know, the head coach at Michigan, um, uh, and some of those things, which we can go into if you want, but right. Well, so, yeah, since we mentioned it and it's funny cause literally we recorded the podcast with Brian, the Michigan fan last week. And then like the day after, uh, this news about Jim Harbaugh comes out, which is just a rumor, but the rumor is, is that he's been, uh, in discussions with the Denver Broncos and the NFL who are looking for a new head coach. And this seems to happen almost every uh, at the end of every season where some NFL team is maybe interested in Harbaugh and he's, we know he's turned them down in the past. You know, it seems like he is somewhat reciprocal in some of these conversations now, but of course it's all rumors, all hearsay. So I'm sure Brian's just like, Oh God, another cycle of it. I'm sick of it at this point. <laughs> right. Right. He, I, you know, I mean, he, he would love it if Jim ends up being the head coach next year and all that, but he is, he's, he's tired of this gamesmanship and the fact that Jim keeps speaking on these uh, on the edges, right on the margins, he's saying, "I expect to be back at Michigan for tw- the twenty twenty three season," and he should want to come back, given the team that they've got. And and Blake Corum has announced he's coming back. You know, there's all kinds of good reasons for Jim to want to stay, but uh, at the same time, there are the the rumors that have a lot of validity because they're they're coming from a lot of different sources. Uh, that that it was Jim's representation who were reaching out to the Broncos and reaching out to the Carolina Panthers saying, hey, we want an interview. So I don't think this is just the Denver Broncos coming to Jim and saying, hey, we're interested in you. I think this is also Jim making his or his uh, representation going out there and actively 
pursuing these jobs because I think Jim's sick of it. I, I, I and and it wouldn't surprise me if over the next few years, again, the, uh, unless some major changes happen to the NIL uh, portal arrangement, I think you're going to see a lot of the older school coaches make the decision to go to the NFL if they can and, uh, and give that a shot. Um, and you know, the younger guys, they're going to embrace the change and just go with it. But I think some old traditional guys are going to be like, I don't want anything to do with this. Right. That could be, and also could be, you know, uh, a move by, uh, Harbaugh's agent to, you know, then come back to Michigan and say, well, hey, you know, he almost got you in the national championship this year and he's getting interest from the NFL. How about you uh, cough up some more money there, U of M? <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm sure that is part of uh, the angle from the, uh, at least it might even not even be Jim's angle, but it's definitely his representation's angle for sure. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and he's also got now he's, you know, I mean, they, they got their wrist slapped by the NCAA. And when that finally oh. comes down, he's probably <laughs> going to be suspended or whatever, because he bought a couple guys, a sandwich and then, uh, was, uh, you know, uh, not truthful with the NCAA uh, regarding these sandwiches being purchased. Yeah. That, that was funny. Cause I saw the headline at first, which was just like, sanctions will soon be announced against you know michigan for yeah. recruiting violations level one level one he could be suspended for six months and you know okay see i didn't even see those details but i just saw it i was like oh man were that this could be a big deal and then i saw a day later it came out oh yeah he bought like right. some recruits some hamburgers and it's like with all the craziness and you know exactly. shady sh shit that's going on in college football right now, the NCAA is going after Harbaugh for a couple hamburgers. Like it's yeah. just missing the forest <laughs> for the trees so badly. It's funny. Oh, totally. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Not reading the room at all. Not reading the room at all. And and yet, but that but that's our reality because all those rules still exist, Alex. The NCAA hasn't changed those rules. They took the whole NIL thing and threw it over the wall and just washed their hands of it. And they act like it doesn't exist for them. It, you know, and it hasn't changed the sport. Yes, it has. You know, your archaic rules that, you, you, you know, you, you were too young to remember this, but back when Eric Crouch, the year that Eric Crouch won the, national, or won the Heisman Trophy in 2001, uh, he was suspended for the first half of the first game of that season because he ate a sandwich during an event that he attended as the guest speaker, but because they gave him that sandwich, that was a violation of uh, extra benefits, and and we got uh, we got cited for it. The University of Nebraska got cited for it, and it was a violation. and And I think we lost some recruiting, you know, days uh, uh, that coaches could recruit uh, were 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 cut as a punishment, and and he had to miss the first half of the first game of the season, which may have cost him the Heisman. You know, it was a discussion because it, it affected his stats. It affected the fact that he had all this negative publicity around him because it was a big deal for about a week and a half. Right. Right. That he, he had broken an NCAA rule and had gotten extra benefits. So of course, yeah, until the details come out, everybody's like, okay, did some, somebody give him a car or, you know, which was the thing back then was, was guys getting slipped money in a bag or, or, uh, getting, uh, access to an automobile for free or whatever. Right. And, uh, and then it ends up being a sandwich. Uh, right. and it was at a, it was at an event where he was speaking. <laughs> right. It's like, so, good I, God. Yeah. I mean, obviously I don't remember from the time, but I do remember you talking about this in the past. So I do remember that. So, so my point is those rules still exist from way back then still in place here because the NCAA hasn't gotten their head out and, and figured out that they need to uh, redefine the realities of that, uh, given the NIL environment. Right. Uh, so the last uh, topic we have here before we wrap up the podcast is um, what the final uh, bowl records were for the major conferences. Um, yeah. This has become less relevant over time as a teams don't care as much about the other bowls. You know, you have, kids going to the NFL, sitting out of games, or now transferring, as we've seen 
in large numbers this year, you know, so you're seeing uh, not necessarily a representation of what these teams were like uh, in the middle of their season, but it's still interesting to look at how everything turned out. Um, so the uh, ACC and the Big Ten uh, tied with a five and four record each. Uh, the Big 12 did pretty poorly with two and seven. Uh, and then you had the Pac-12 was three and four, and the SEC was on top seven and five. Um, now, I was just thinking before this that if Ohio State had managed to beat Georgia, and uh, then that would have left the SEC at five and six for their uh, bowl records. Um, and even assuming that Ohio State didn't win the national championship game, then that would have left the Big Ten uh, six and three. I believe. Um, so, you know, that's how close the Big Ten came to flipping the script on that particular narrative. But uh, Ohio State couldn't kick that darn field goal. Yeah, you know, that's a very good point. And it's and it's and it's probably one of the reasons why those those statistics uh, uh, on their surface can be misleading. But it but it is insightful that if you look at, uh, I believe the SEC started the bowl season, meaning they're lower tier teams. OK in the lesser bowls, okay, because they got a bunch of teams eligible for bowl games because, again, they only play eight conference games. So they had all the – and those four lesser teams in the early bowls all lost. I believe they started the bowl season 0-4. They definitely started at 0-3, and and I think they started at 0-4. And And then they ended up 7-5, and you say? Right. So so they won, you know, seven of their last eight bowl games. The, the the conference did uh, right. so the, the the higher tier teams performed very well and that concentration of of um, premier teams is just going to continue to grow uh, unless the the these guys who run the sport who have control of this sport right now uh, have the guts to have some serious conversations about what they need to do to salvage the competitive re- reality of the sport Right. Yeah. Yeah. The SEC had 11 total teams in the bowls this year, which is the most of any conference to your point, yeah. because their records are a bit inflated because they uh, have just the eight conference games and play weaker competition. in their non-conference generally. Right. Uh, and, and they got exposed by going 0 four right at the beginning. Right. And, and I'm not being critical of the eight game thing. I, if anything, I'm I, I'm I'm really pointing the finger at Jim Delaney, who was the commissioner of the Big Ten, for going to nine games, thinking he had secured an equal commitment uh, from the SEC to also do nine games, only to see them back away from it and and stay at eight as the as their conferences expanded, right? And Jim's point was, and he he believed this strongly, and why he felt he he wanted to and did lead on this issue was to say that hey. If we're going to have a conference that has, you know, 12 or 14 teams in it, then you want to be able to play each other with enough regularity that you guys are actually legitimately conference members. I mean, even now with two new conference members coming in, we're now looking at um, uh, 16 teams, right, in a conference. Well, how often do you get to play your conference foes, right? Uh, Forget the non-conference. Heck, do you even know your own conference mates? Right. There was supposed to be, you know, some shared commonality to, to, to define a conference. Not to mention what we talked about last, I think it was last episode or maybe the one before that, how Nebraska was on this these six-year deals, right, in terms of who we were playing from the other division. You know, right. why make that six years? That's such a long commitment where you're not going to play anybody else but those two teams in the other side of the conference right so if the goal is to get everybody to play everybody at least some of the time then you should be mixing that up way more often except they're trying to they're trying to maximize eyeballs and so there's a compromise that they end up playing uh, both sides of that coin uh but the the bottom line is uh i admire the big Ten's decision to go to the nine games because i think that was the right decision for um you know, the conference and it's, um, a long-term viability, uh, because frankly, there, there's more interest in a conference game than a non-conference game, unless that non-conference game is against prominent teams, which has frankly not improved in the current era 
because there's no incentive for them to put a death row um, schedule together of non-conference opponents. There's no, there's no advantage to doing that. Uh, and since you can control it, you, you avoid it if you're smart. Right. And that's what the SEC has done very, very well. The only exception to that, I would say, is that, you know, on week one, right, there's always at least one or two big uh, non-conference oh. games, you know, to kind of kick oh, yeah. off the season. But yeah. that's really it. Well, almost every conference, every team schedule uh, from the Power Five conferences, they will have one what they consider major opponent of theirs uh, in the non-conference. There's always one big name, right? Now, when you're the Big Ten and you only have three non-conference games and one of them is a big name, then you're, you're playing two uh, revenue games, two, two games against opponents that you expect to beat you know, 80 times out of 100 or more, right? And those are revenue games, not likely to be competitive. Well, in the SEC, a lot of those schools, not only do they not play a competitive uh, team, they oftentimes don't even leave their region, right? They don't even travel anywhere. Where Nebraska regularly plays Washington or USC or UCLA or somebody like that, or you know, they travel a great distance, they go to another conference, another Power 5 conference, and play another Power 5 school that's actually competitive with them as opposed to playing the bottom rung. We don't go play Vanderbilt, right? (laughs) Right. Which is the SEC's worst school, that type of deal. So I don't know. It's just a philosophy thing, and it's irritating. It's like a burr in the saddle for me. (laughs) That's the bottom line. I can tell. I can tell. All right, so we're going to save the Nebraska discussion for our next episode. We'll talk about Matt Rule's hopefully full uh, assistant coaching staff as well as all the recruiting news, who we were able to sign, uh, in the early signing period and how things are going in this kind of second recruiting period and all that sort of stuff. Um, as you've heard, we've got plenty of uh, broader topics to talk about in the off season. So we'll slow down in our schedule, but we've still got plenty to uh, discuss and keep the college football spirit going over these next few months. Absolutely. All right. Uh, so if you all out there enjoyed listening to this podcast, you can email us at huskerpete 13 at gmail.com. You can also reach out to us uh, on Spotify or on Apple Podcasts. If you search for College Football Throwdown, you can leave us a review there. Uh, let us know what you think of the podcast or uh, any other constructive feedback. So thank you all out there for listening. And thank you, Dad, for joining me for this season of College Football. And until next time, go Big Red. Go Big Red. Go Big Red.